0: But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as as the first of the harvest, Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler in authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, good morning, Covenant. Happy Easter to all of you. Uh, This is definitely a different Easter. In the history of the Christian uh, church, but uh, nevertheless, we can worship together even scattered instead of being gathered this morning. You know, if there's one upside to all of this social distancing and slowing down of life and isolating is that uh, finally Catherine is getting her wish uh, and honeydews are getting done, right? Uh, Things around the house are getting done and uh, and so I know she's torn because she wants me to social distance, yet for some reason it's okay for me to go to Home Depot. I'm not quite sure about that, but, uh, uh, but it's important to get all these things done. And uh, so Friday, I popped down to get a part for a repair on a shower that has been two years overdue. And uh, as I got up to the, the Home Depot doors, I was greeted by a lady who, I have to give her props for her enthusiasm and her kindness and her smile and her joy in the midst of a very difficult time. And so she greets me with a big hello, and of course I appreciate it, but what I couldn't help but focus on was the big floppy Easter ears. She had the biggest Easter ears I think I've ever seen on someone's head as she welcomed me to Home Depot. And I appreciated all of the enthusiasm, but for some reason I couldn't get past the idea, and I saw that, of in some ways how this weekend has been a little bit hijacked um, by our culture. You know, um, Recently, back in 2018, a survey was done that uh, told us different things about where we are in the United States when it comes to Easter. 84% of Americans observe Easter, but what you'll find is that about 55 to 60% 60% of the Americans, the top three things revolve around candy and egg hunts and painting eggs and things like this. So the, the rabbit egg thing has really uh, taken over the meaning. About half of, the, of Americans uh, go to church and have a, uh, at least some semblance of a, of a spiritual emphasis on Easter. Uh, some of the other things that you realize is the importance of Easter and, and what is most important on that day. Uh, Thankfully, uh, the spiritual aspect is still at least in the top, you know, two. Uh, 36% of Americans say that the religious meaning is what's most important about Easter. But 47% say the most important thing is that it gives you an opportunity to get together with family. And then uh, one of the other aspects of Easter is the money. 74% of us will buy something, will spend at least $15 on gifts and, and you know that most of that's going for those little Cadbury eggs, right? The chocolate eggs. Absolutely. They are delicious. I don't blame people for buying them. Um, you know, the, this survey kind of tracks with many other surveys that have been going on for the last 20 years. The Harris Organization, the Barna Organization, Gallup, they do different surveys. Um, uh, for example, one of those surveys indicates that 40% of Americans uh, do not believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually took place. Uh, sadly, Barna, who tends to survey also Christian organizations, Christian people and churches, finds that 30% of born-again Christians agree with this. And a born-again Christian is somebody who is identified as having turned to Jesus in faith, repenting of their sins, and are trusting in Him for salvation and for eternity in heaven. 30% of self-identified born-again Christians do not believe that a resurrection actually took place, that it was a historical event. And that blows my mind in one hand, but on the other hand, it doesn't because, uh, you know, people in the church are going to believe what, attendant believe what they are taught and what their pastors teach and preach. And over the last 20 years, the trend within the clergy of Protestant churches is alarming. Uh, across the denominations, Protestant denominations in America and in the UK, uh, you will find, depending on the denomination, one-third to two-thirds of the clergy believe that the resurrection is just a myth or a fable. And so there's an old adage that when there is mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pews. has never been truer than on this matter right here. And so unfortunately, Christians are being deceived by the very people who are supposed to be bringing them the word of God. So just to to, so that I don't want any you know, confusion, I don't want any mushiness coming from our stage uh, this morning and from this pulpit, so that there's no question of as to where we stand as a church and as what the scriptures actually teach. I want to state it very plainly from the outset this morning. The resurrection of Christ is so fundamental to Christianity that to deny it is to reject our faith. Let me say it again, the resurrection of Christ is so fundamental, this is a fundamental of our faith, it's so fundamental to Christianity that to deny it is to actually reject our faith. And our text this morning is one of many such texts and passages of Scripture that teach us this truth. Now, we're picking up in the middle of of chapter 15, and so let me set some context uh, the Corinthians were a church that the Apostle Paul started in the city of Corinth, and and honestly, they were a little bit of a pain in the neck to uh, the Apostle Paul. And they had all kinds of problems and issues and contentious aspects to their church, and they were asking many questions of him, and, and in 1 Corinthians, he's essentially answering many of these questions and the issues that they have. In chapter 15, he takes on their questions about the resurrection. Not only Jesus's resurrection, but their own resurrection. You see, the the Greeks and the Romans of that era, uh, they they were very skeptical. Uh, They just did not believe in a physical bodily resurrection after death. It was foreign to their cultures and to their philosophical systems. And so it's natural that even though they may convert and embrace Christ, that heritage that they had been raised with would generate questions about the resurrection. And so in this chapter, Paul is addressing those questions. And he starts out in the first several verses by establishing the historical fact. And he just points out how fundamental the resurrection is to Christianity and the fact that so many people who actually saw Jesus after the resurrection were still alive even at at that time. And then Paul takes more of a a philosophical uh, perspective, a theological and philosophical perspective. And he begins to explain why the resurrection is so important. And so when we come to verse 17, he's kind of concluding this Think about the implications of the if there is no resurrection. And this is what he says in in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. And then the, the first verse of our text this morning. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So so Paul is saying to these Corinthians and to us, imagine if it's true that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Essentially, if that is the case, we're wasting our time. And we're in deep trouble because our sins haven't been forgiven. But thankfully, the first three words of verse 20 stand out. But in fact. But in fact, Christ has raised, been raised from the dead. There is no ambiguity and no equivocation in God's word. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fundamental fact of Christianity. Jesus rose from the dead. Our faith rests upon this. To reject it is to reject our faith. So from our text this morning, I want to give you... Uh, several reasons and some personal applications that show us that why the resurrection turns the agony of the cross into something that is beautiful and crucial for us to believe. Beginning in verse 21, we see that Jesus' resurrection fulfills God's garden promises to his people. In verse 21, Paul writes, "'So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam.'" It's interesting that in his defense of why the resurrection is important, Paul begins by going back to the Garden of Eden. He looks at the garden and points out how all of humanity is actually born united to Adam. We're under his representation. So in the garden, when Adam rebelled against God and sinned, it's the same as if we rebelled against God and sinned. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the scriptures teach us that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men have sinned. So when we consider the fact that Adam sinned, and that sin and corruption that was introduced into humanity and into creation, and you look at the scope of it, the the radical, absolute nature of it, we can begin to understand why we see the things that we see in our world today. The reason we have pandemics and disease and death is due to the consequences of humanity's rebellion against God. The reason we have wars and crimes and genocides and and even interpersonal relationships and then our families and our our friendships and marriages, this is all due to our initial rebellion in the Garden of Eden. God, as a result, when you look at Genesis chapter three, the consequences of humanity's sin brought about uh, curses from God. And as a result of those curses, we realize that we are not a people who are sin sick and need of medicine in need of therapy and you know, mindfulness training. We are sin dead, the scriptures teach us. We're in need of resurrection. In the garden, when God announced those consequences upon humanity, and we see those in our world today, he also gave us hope. In the middle of the, the cursings that he puts upon the world and upon, for example, Satan, Uh, as a result of what he did, God announces the good news of the gospel. He tells us in Genesis chapter three that there would come one who would remedy all of this, who would address this sin, this death, and this corruption that's the result of our fall. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we read God saying, I will put enmity, and he's speaking to Satan here, I will put enmity, antagonism, hostility, war between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. And here's the important thing. The offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's he speaking of? What's he speaking of here? Fundamental to our faith, right? Is our need to be rescued from our sin and from the results of our rebellion against God and what's happened within creation. This one who God promises will come and who will crush satan's head who will be bruised by satan and hurt by satan but will crush and destroy him who is that one that is jesus and the resurrection of christ is the fulfillment of this promise that god initially makes in the, in the garden that one day someone would come and redeem his people so jesus's resurrection fulfills god's garden promises it also guarantees our future Resurrection. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Look at verse 22 again. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Over the last several months, as we've been looking at the book of Romans systematically from chapter 1, and and now we've finished up through chapter 11... Uh, we have seen numerous times a theme arise within the book of Romans. It's the, the union of Christians with Christ, the union of the believers. And we saw this in chapter 5, we saw it in chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9, and a reference to it maybe even in chapter 11. And right now, Paul does the same thing here in First Corinthians. Again, he brings up this very important truth that we are united, every one of us right now, we either belong to Adam or we belong to Christ. We're either united to Adam with his sin and death, or we are united to Christ and his death and his resurrection life. In Romans chapter 5, we read it like this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." In our Good Friday service, Pastor Jonathan uh, took the time to speak of Jesus's death on the cross and how his substitutionary atonement is so important to all of us. That that word substitutionary is important. That on the cross, Jesus, he took our place. He took our punishment. He took our death that we deserve. The, The wrath of God that was poured out on our sin was poured out on him instead. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation, therefore, is ours. When we trust in him and we claim by faith his life to be our life. When we claim by faith his death to be our death. And so the important question for all of us to answer this morning is simply this. Who do I belong to? Who am I united to? Who represents me this morning? Is it Adam or is it Jesus? Are you united to Adam or are you united to Christ? If this morning you're in charge of your life, you're living your life for your desires and for your wants, if you are the standard for what is right and wrong and essentially you are the God, the Lord of your life, you're united to Adam. If you've never turned from your sins and have trusted in Christ for salvation, you're united to Adam. You belong to Adam. And the consequences of those curses on the garden and the garden reside upon you this morning. But there is an alternative. Christ came. He took our place. You can belong to him this morning. You can turn from your sin and you can admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and trust in him in the same way that we're united to Jesus' life and his death, we also unite, we can be united to His resurrection. In verse 23, there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. then all who belong to Christ will be raised when He comes back. There's a, there's a gospel logic here, right? Uh, we are in Christ. That's the first premise. Second premise, Christ rose from the dead. The conclusion, therefore, we will be resurrected. His past resurrection is the guarantee of our future resurrection at his second coming. And why is this going to take place? It's all for the worship and the glory of God. You know, in, in, in Ephesians, Paul comes back to this idea of being united to christ it's in romans it's in galatians corinthians ephesians colossians uh, virtually every one of paul's epistles in one way or another will bring this idea up in ephesians chapter 2 paul starts out by telling us how we are united to adam we're children of disobedience we're dead in our sins this is the natural state in which all of us are born It doesn't mean that every one of us will be as wicked and evil and horrible as a person could possibly be. And it doesn't mean that we won't be able to do things that are good for our society and helpful to our nation. But what it does mean is that at the core of our being, we rebel against God and everything that we do is for our own ends, not for the glory of God. And so Ephesians 2 opens up with this indictment that we are dead in our sins and that we are actually followers of our enemy, living in darkness. And in verse five, Paul says, but God in his grace saves us. And then he brings up our union with Christ into resurrection. Verse six, he writes this, for he, God, raised us from the dead along with Christ." And seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting the way Paul puts this? Christ Jesus' resurrection is so certain that our resurrection is certain. In the eyes of God, it's as if when he raised Jesus, he raised us at that time. We haven't experienced it yet. We'll experience it at his second coming. But in the mind of God, it is a done deal. Jesus' resurrection, it fulfills the promises God made in the garden. It guarantees our future resurrection. And thirdly, His resurrection and ascension inaugurates His present reign over everything. In verse 24, Paul writes, After that, in other words, after the second coming, when we are resurrected, when Christ comes back after our resurrection, the end will come. The end of this world, this era, this time that we live in will all be over When he will turn the kingdom over to God, the father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. You know, as we have been experiencing this pandemic and you watch the news and and you read blogs and articles at various times, uh, a writer or a talking head has raised the question, you know, where is God in all of this? You know, even Christian writers have said, you know, why is Jesus letting this happen? What is he doing? Why doesn't he stop all this from taking place? Where is he right now? The answer to that question is very simple. Jesus is exactly where he was six months ago before this pandemic started. He's sitting on the throne of the universe, reigning and ruling over his kingdom and over this world. The resurrection of Christ proves something important that his kingdom has been inaugurated. It's been started. But pandemics prove that his kingdom has not yet been consummated. We have a phrase in in Christian studies and and, and, uh, writings that helps us to understand what we're experiencing. It's the phrase, already, but not yet. I've given this to you before through the years. Four simple words, already, but not yet. Yeah, four words. That's what we live in right now. We live in the already but not yet phase of God's kingdom. Christ is reigning. He has already begun his kingdom, but it has not yet been fully consummated. His kingdom is growing. It's expanding. The influence is spreading across the world, but it is not yet fully realized. As a result, right? Pandemics, death, Fear, crime, all the horrors that we see in our world, spiritual warfare, all of these things are graphic reminders that we live in this time between the beginning of his kingdom, the inauguration, and the final outworking, the final fulfillment and consummation of when his victory will be complete and thorough. What we're experiencing right now are the death throes of death and sin. It's the already, but not yet. And we live this reality every day, don't we? And in any number of ways, we experience it. And as a result, we can be tempted to lose heart and give in to the hysteria of those who don't have hope. But the resurrection of Jesus is a daily reminder to all of us of who is actually in charge, what the outcome will be when Jesus left that tomb and came back to life, the verdict has been announced. The future has been assured. And so this leads us to the final reason why the resurrection turns the agony of the cross into something that's beautiful, something that's crucial for us to all believe in. Fourth reason, Jesus' resurrection is the first step in the ultimate restoration of creation. Verse 26, a great verse, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In these days, when we see people dying, the way that it's happening, and the stories will just absolutely you know, rip your heart out as you, as you read different examples of what's been taking place and what's happening. As you see the people, our, man, our, our medical community, wow, what an incredible group of people. And we see what's happening to them, and how they are, in many cases, sacrificing their own lives to care for those who are in need, we're reminded of something. We're reminded of how horrific death is. Sometimes in the church, we sentimentalize death. We use little cliches and sayings that tend to blunt death and the ugliness of death. We'll say things like to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And that's true. And isn't it great? She's with her Savior now. And and that is true. But let's not forget that death sucks. Death is horrible. Death, and every manifestation of it, it's a manifestation of sin. Death is a direct attack against God's good creation. It's horrific. Death, let me put it like this. Anytime somebody tells you, well, death is just, that's just a natural part of it. No, death is not natural. It is an aberration that was introduced into creation because of sin. We should hate death. We should despise it. We should abhor it. We're comforted by the truths of the gospel that yes, for the Christian To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, but the journey to that presence and what people go through is horrific. The resurrection of Christ, excuse me, it's not COVID, it's just sinuses. Allergies are horrible right now. The resurrection of Christ announces something important. The days of sin and death are truly numbered. Their defeat, it's inevitable. The last enemy to be destroyed. Notice that word destroyed, annihilated, eradicated. It's death. Have you ever wondered why this is so important? Have you ever wondered why even our resurrection and our future physical bodily resurrection is so important? I mean, why can't we just, you know, stay incorporeal spirits in heaven with God for all of eternity. Because it is true that for the Christian, when we die, to be absent from our bodies, our souls, what makes us us, created in the image of God, resides with Christ and with God and our family and those that we love and the joys of heaven. And what a wonderful intermediate destiny that is for the Christian. Why can't we just stay like that? Why don't we just stay, you know, you know, I hate to, you know, I have images of you know fluffy clouds and diapers right now on people but in hearts but that's not the way it is but you know you get the idea why can't we just stay in the spirit world like that and and the answer is very simple god's kingdom old testament new testament's consistent teaching us this god's kingdom is not just spiritual it is spiritual and physical and so when god restores His creation and completely recreates it and and brings about the restoration of the universe. When Jesus does this, there will certainly be that spiritual dimension, but there also is this physical dimension. The reason why we die and must be resurrected is because the scriptures tell us this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because this flesh and blood has been so radically corrupted by sin. And the evidence of that is death. The wages of our sin is death. Death is horrible. It is the manifestation of sin in the human line. And this is why our physical restoration and resurrection is so important. Why Jesus' resurrection is so important. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, sin won because he experienced the penalties of sin, death, and it would continue today. But by, by being resurrected, Jesus defeats death, that ultimate consequence of sin, demonstrating to all of us that sin and death has been defeated in his life, his burial, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this is, that is true for Jesus. This is true for us. Without our physical resurrection, sin, and death wins. We experience the curses of the garden and never the blessings and redemption of the cross as a result. It goes back to what Paul said in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Jesus died And he rose again to redeem his people, to restore creation. This doctrine, it is fundamental to our Christian faith. And if you have not experienced this, I want to invite you this morning. Romans chapter 10 tells us how important this truth is. That you can't be a Christian without believing that Jesus is Lord, that he is God in the flesh, and that God raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. This is fundamental to our faith. To reject it is to reject Christianity. But the truth of the resurrection is more than just an eternal reality. There are benefits in our world today, and I've put three of them up on the screen for you That the resurrection in our daily life, how does it help us? Well, it gives us comfort during times like this of turmoil, knowing that Christ is reigning and ruling and that ultimately pandemics and diseases and death do not have the final word upon us and upon those that we love. It brings comfort. It gives boldness to be on mission for Christ and hope for a better future. The Apostle Paul, who who wrote all of these things about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, he writes another letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, or as President Trump calls it, 2 Corinthians. Um, In 2 Corinthians, uh, it's a very personal letter because Paul was always being attacked. By the Corinthian church. They they just didn't seem to respect him too much because he wasn't physically impressive and a great orator and all of the things that the Greek society respected and held to high esteem. He would not have had very many followers on his Instagram, in other words, if it had been back in that day and age, according to the Greeks. And so, in, in face of their personal attacks and their insults and things that took place, the Apostle Paul, who arguably is the greatest Christian who ever lived, right? You know, maybe Peter, I mean I mean you're getting right I mean they're, they're not maybe one and two, okay? But Paul, in Second Corinthians gives us this incredible insight as to who he is. And it's interesting to see how, at one of the climactic parts of two Corinthians, he brings this out in Second Corinthians chapter four. And so I want to close this morning by reading these verses and hopefully showing you that for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection gave him comfort during the times of turmoil that he experienced, that it emboldened him to be on mission for Christ, and it provided him hope for a better future. We read in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We are pressed on every side by troubles, but not crushed and broken. We are perplexed because we don't know why things happen as they do but we don't give up and quit. Do you you see how he's being comforted by the gospel? We are hunted down, but God never abandons us. We get knocked down, but we get up again and keep going. And he talks about all the ways that he experiences and the persecutions, the stonings, the starvation, the the imprisonments, all of the, the deprivations and hardships of life that he experienced being a Christian proclaiming the gospel. And then he turns to how the resurrection gives him boldness. And in verse 13, we boldly say what we believe, trusting God to take care for us, just as the Psalm writer did when he said, I believe and therefore I speak, We know that the same God who brought the Lord Jesus back from death will also bring us back to life again with Jesus and present us to him along with you. In other words, why would we be afraid, Christian, to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? What is the worst thing anybody can ever do to us? What's the worst thing? The resurrection addresses it. We know that one day we'll be raised from the dead. Even if they take our lives, the resurrection emboldens us to take that risk. And then finally, he writes, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our inner strength in the Lord is growing every day. These troubles and sufferings of ours are after all quite small and they won't last very long. A timely message for us in the days that we live. Yet this short time of distress will result in God's richest blessings upon us forever and ever. So we do not look at what we see right now, the troubles, the social distancing, the pandemics, the disease, the death, the loss of friends and those that we love, but we look forward to the joys in heaven which we have not yet seen. The troubles will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. And the guarantee of this is that he is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to earth to pay the penalty for our sins, to take our place on the cross, to experience your wrath and judgment against our sinfulness. And Lord, we thank you that you did not stay in that grave, but you rose again. And that you ascended after 40 days to sit at the right hand of the Father, from which right now you rule and you reign your creation, expanding it, bringing it into fulfillment. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you hasten the day when this task is done, when you will return, recreate us and resurrect us and give us the body and the existence that was promised in that garden thousands of years ago. For those who do not know you, Lord Jesus, who hear my voice even this morning, who perhaps have continued to worship self, who have entertained thoughts of who you are, and wondered maybe if they should take seriously the the words of Scripture, the, the message of the pastor, would even now this morning you give them an inner conviction That there is nothing more important in their life, no job, no career, no person, child, family member, experience, reputation, nothing is more important than them answering the question of who they belong to and the answer being you, Lord Jesus. And so for everyone who this morning belongs to Adam, may you open their eyes and give them a heart that loves you, Jesus, so that they may belong to you. In your name, I pray these things for their good and for the glory of your name. Amen.